0: My name is Sarah McNulty and I'm on staff here at EAC. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we are so glad you're here. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you giving us an hour of it. And we have a lot more to offer here than just Sunday mornings. No matter what stage of life you're in or what you may be going through, we're sure we have a place for you here. We have Bible studies, exercise, and nutrition classes designed just for women of all ages. And we have stuff just for men too, like monthly breakfasts, sporting events, and retreats. Parents with kids at home, we know that the days can be long, but the years are short. Our children's ministry called The Kids has events for you and your children each month, as well as a weekly program during our 10 a.m. Sunday morning service. And we have a student ministry for kids in middle and high school that has groups that meet weekly and other special events and retreats throughout the year. Whether you're a student, young adult, just starting out, find yourself struggling with your finances, grieving the loss of a loved one, battling an addiction, needing the support of fellow veterans, or going through the painful journey of a divorce or separation, we try to offer something for every season of life. And these are just some examples of the areas that we can support and encourage you. If anything I mentioned today spoke to where you're at, please take a few minutes and go to our website or download our Church Center app. There you will find more info about everything I mentioned today and much more about what's happening in the life of our church. The last thing we want you to know is that if you're joining us for the first time in person, be sure to stop by the information desk in the lobby. We'd love to meet you and give you a small gift. And if you're joining us online for the first time, let us know in the chat box. We have a gift for you too. We hope that you've enjoyed your experience with us so far and that you'll leave here today having encountered the presence of God and feeling blessed. Thanks so much for being here, and we hope to see you again soon.
1: Well, good morning, everyone, whether here in person at North Avenue watching online. My name is Scott, I happen to be the lead pastor here at Essex Alliance Church, and let me begin this morning by reading to you this account from the Gospel of Matthew. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he has said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as I have told you. And so the women, they hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid and yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples." Happy Easter to you. Let me begin by saying thank you for being here. Thank you for giving us a little piece of your Easter weekend as we come together and celebrate. It means so much to us that you'd give us an hour of your time, and we're thrilled that you're here. You know, Easter comes, and you know this, but I'll say it again. Easter is a really big deal. I mean, Easter is a big deal. I want to remind you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is the biggest story of all history. No story matches it. Against all odds, good news finally came from a graveyard. Good news never comes out of a cemetery. But on this day, it did. Good news came from a cemetery. And against all odds, good news burst forth from a sealed tomb. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ rocked the world. I love Easter. Now, as a pastor, it's uh, it's Easter and everybody already knows what I'm going to preach on. Years ago, one of our staff said, so Easter's come, what are you going to preach on? My answer was, Jesus. And then he just looked at me and said, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. We're just going to talk about Jesus. You got it. Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the empty tomb. It, it's a big Sunday. I was driving through town this past week. I had a radio on, and I, I can't recall the station. I, it was a, it was a, a, a satellite station and the guy was doing on the street interviews with people about Easter. You know what does Easter mean? What's the Easter mean to you? Those kind of things. And one guy came on and he said, "What's Easter mean to you?" He said, "Man, Easter's big." And of course the interviewer said, "Well, how big is it?" Here's his quote. "Easter is like the Super Bowl of all Sundays for the church." I thought, "Well, there you go. He captured it. Easter Sunday is the Super Bowl of all Sundays when it comes to the church. It's a big day." And you know, and it's a big day this, this year, maybe even unlike other years, because this is the year where people are beginning to climb back out of the caves of, of COVID. In fact, I would say if you're watching online, just so you know, we're open, it's alive and well. You know, the, the presence of Christ is here, and we invite you to be here, and thank you for being here. It's a big day. It's, it's, a, it's, a, a t- it's springtime. It's time full of hope, especially if you're a Red Sox fan. It's a season of hope. Because the truth of it is, the only time the Red Sox people have any hope is spring. So it's, a, it's an important time. Now, if you've been here before, you know that every Easter, I take some moment to encourage Red Sox fans. Now, I gotta, this is true. I got to tell you this story. This is true. I'm making this up. Friday, this past Friday, I'm at a red light in Essex, five corners. announcer comes on, and he says, and I'm listening to the radio, and he, goes, he comes on and goes, listen, he says, today is opening day at Fenway. Today is home opener at Fenway. And he goes, you know, it's always a big day when you're you know, opening day at the, home, at the home field. and It's a big day at Fenway. And then he said these words. He said, and to honor all of our Red Sox fans who are listening, I'm going to play the Red Sox fans theme song. Have and here's what he played. about the loser? Beaten by the queen of Hearts every time. Have you heard about I don't know who that guy is or what station he's on, but I've now got it tuned into my radio. I love this guy. I sat there and I just laughed. Now, please know I don't say anything more about Red Sox or baseball until the fall because sure, shooting is going to come back to bite me. So I had had my shot and now I'm done. But you know, Easter is a big deal, especially for churches. We want to get it right. Now, we want to get right every Sunday, but quite honestly, Easter's coming, and we work really hard to get it right. I feel so bad for this one church. My son-in-law sent me a picture. Let me give you the background. So, one of of the churches are getting ready for Easter. They're having banners made that said, Christ is risen. So, they sent the banners out to be printed just days before Easter. My son-in-law sent this. Just days before Easter, one of the banners came back, and here's what it said. Chris is risen. And I... I like the text. Way to go, Chris. Whoa! I gotta tell you, that's a tough way to start Easter week, because you're a church. I don't know what church that is, but I pray for them. I'm hoping it goes better for them now than it did when they got the banners out. I've been there. Open that banner, you go, oh, Chris has written, oh dear. So listen, let me start right from the very beginning, explaining to you the purpose of Easter. Right from the very beginning, the purpose of Easter. Easter actually points to the answer of a key question that every single person in life has to answer. Even if you kind of avoid it, you should answer it. Easter is actually the answer. It actually points to the answer of the most important question, if not the most important question, certainly one of the most important questions of life that every person needs to answer. Easter answers this question, Who is Jesus? It answers that question. Now, you need to know that in the first century, when Jesus was walking on this earth, um, they were asking the same question. Read the gospel accounts, and you'll see that Jesus does all of these miracles, and every time he does a miracle, no one says, well, how'd he do that? I watch a magician, and I think, how'd he do that? I never say, who is this guy? But if you read the accounts of the gospels, every single time Jesus did a miracle, every time he preached, the question on their minds was... Who is this guy? And please know, they didn't believe for a moment that he was who he said he was. I mean, who did he say he was? Son of God? God in the flesh? The Messiah? Savior of the world? And I would say their view was, no, 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 no. Note any of that, all of that. They didn't believe it for a moment. Now, some of you biblical scholars will say, hey, wait a minute, I've read the, test- I read the gospels. and the- I think those disciples, they believed. No, they didn't. They hoped he would be. They wanted him to be. They had glimmers of hope where you think, oh, they were leaning in heavy. But listen very carefully. On Friday night and on Saturday, there were no followers of Jesus Christ. On Saturday, there were no believers. There was no one who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But now hear this next statement. The resurrection is what convinced them. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that convinced those disciples and all of those first century followers of Jesus that he was actually who he claimed to be. He was the Messiah. He was the sent one. He was the son of God. He was the savior. And please know it was not the teachings of Christ that convinced them. It was not the miracles of Christ that convinced them. It wasn't the fact that he was a really nice guy. He did really nice things for people who convinced them. Only one thing convinced them. From Friday night and Saturday, they were not convinced. By Sunday, the light began to come on. And what convinced them was that Jesus Christ actually came back from the dead. Now, if you happen to be a person, and many of you are invited here by a guest or maybe here for a family member. If you happen to be one of those folks that have this view of Christianity, which is, is frequent and common, And you think to yourselves, you know, you Christians, you got this blind faith in this whole Jesus story, this blind faith in the resurrection, that blind faith in all this stuff. I just would ask you, don't make that mistake. Now, admittedly, there is faith involved in following Jesus, but it is not blind faith. There is faith involved, but it is not blind. Now listen carefully. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a first century guy named Matthew actually wrote down and documented the life of Jesus. Historically documented it. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a Greek guy named Mark got Peter to tell him his story and he recorded the story and he checked the story and he verified the story and when he got done, he said... Peter I believe it to be true we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because another Greek guy a doctor a physician named Luke actually traveled all of Judea and actually parts of the world and he met and he saw and he interviewed person after person after person who claimed they had seen Jesus and followed Jesus and when he got done he said it's true in fact, he wrote when, when Luke wrote his book of the Bible, he said these words, I, "I write to excellent Theophilus." and he said, "I'm writing these things because I want you to know what caused me to believe." Because I saw these things to be true. I love this one. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a guy named James, who actually was the blood brother of Jesus, James believed that Jesus Christ was the, the sent one, the Messiah was Lord." Now, I got a question for you. If you have a brother, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he's the Messiah? You got it, right? You're going, no way, absolutely. So James says, he's the one. Now, listen, those brave writers, they wrote down their stories. They documented them in the first century, meaning this is still in the time when when Jesus had walked the earth, and this is shortly after the resurrection, They wrote down their stories. Their stories were all taken and collected and put into one volume we call the Bible. But well before the Bible ever came to print as we know it, hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitnesses all said, we saw him. He was alive. They believed the story to be true. Now, kind of side note for you. If Jesus does not come back from the dead, then please know that the Jesus story isn't worth telling because you know anything about it that it wasn't the teachings of Jesus that was causing all of this stir it was the teaching that Jesus said who i am you see if jesus isn't resurrected from the dead there is no story to tell there's nothing to keep going it's all dead it's all finished and please know on that first easter morning there were no disciples in the cemetery standing by the tomb going everybody here we go 10 9 eight everybody seven here it comes no one why because he was dead and that's exactly where they were at this morning i want to tell you the easter story a little different approach in my easter message i want to tell you the easter story i'm going to tell it from the perspective of a guy named john we've been studying the gospel of john next week come on back we're going to look at john again with these incredible stories with when jesus meets a blind guy but uh, john's viewpoint is a little different so i'm just going to tell his story now, I want to remind you as, we, as you read the Gospel of John that sometimes it reads differently. And that's because, remember this, it's John's, it's John's account, it's John's story But instead of John actually writing it himself, he gave it, he dictated it to someone. He had someone write it as he told the story. That's why when the writer wrote it, sometimes he'll say, you know, the favorite disciple of Jesus. As opposed to John saying, me, the writer was talking about this other person. Well, that's who, it's John, because John had someone write it down for him. So he dictated it to him. So here's, let's start the story. So John was with Jesus on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode that colt into the golden gate and everyone swarmed around him with palm branches saying, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, it was a huge day and John was right there when they walked into the gate. Now please know this, when John walked through that gate of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, John did not expect a crucifixion and he did not expect ever a resurrection So the question you ought to ask yourself then, well, what did John and what did the disciples expect on that day? What were they thinking was going to happen as they entered into Jerusalem? Here's what they expected. They were expecting Jesus to be crowned king. That's what they were expecting. And it makes perfect sense if you look at it. If you go back just two miles outside of Jerusalem, there's a little town there and a guy was dead in that town named Lazarus. And just a few days earlier, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Don't forget, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And that's kind of important because they authenticate the fact that he was dead. Everyone knew he was dead. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the Bible says all sorts of people saw this happen and all sorts of people believed in Jesus. So please get this. Now, days later, two miles away, he walks in Jerusalem and he's got a following. That's why the crowds are there. That's why the palm branches, that's why they're shouting Hosanna. Because, I mean, this is the moment. And they're expecting Jesus to be crowned king. There's a momentum taking place. There's movement. People are thinking Jesus is the one who will lead the revolution against Rome. John's thinking this is a great day. He's going to be crowned king. But there's another story taking place. You see, in that same city of Jerusalem, you've got the religious leaders who have determined that enough of this Jesus movement. It's time for Jesus to die. This false teacher who is teaching against everything that they were teaching. Time for the end to come to Jesus. And so they put a plan in place. So it's Palm Sunday and Jesus comes into the, into, the, into the city. He goes to the temple and he preaches and teaches. And please get, here's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is telling the people that he's about to inaugurate a brand new kingdom. He's about to inaugurate this incredible new, quote unquote, religious society, if you will. But this new kingdom he's going to be in place, it's going to have a new commandment. Now that would put the religious leaders on their heads because there's no new commandments. We have the Ten Commandments. And by the way, the only one that can add to that is God, and Jesus is not God. But he says there's going to be a new movement, and it's going to be based on a new commandment. And the new commandment is this. You're going to love one another the way that I, Jesus said, have loved you. You're going to love people the way I have loved you. And, of course, they're trying to figure this out, and they're thinking, well, Jesus, we know that you love us, but what exactly does that mean? Well, they had no idea that in just days, just days, Jesus was going to put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away. But it would not take their breath away with a smile. It would take their breath away with fear and brokenness because it was going to be the cross. They didn't know it. They didn't know it, but Jesus was about to do something that for them and for you... And for you, and for you, and for you, and you, and you, and you. And I could go through and pick every one of you out. But don't be alarmed if you're thinking, he just pointed at me. I pointed an empty space, and that way everyone thinks I pointed at them. Okay, So so you're free. You're not going, I think he singled me out. No, I didn't. If I want to do that, I'll have you stand, which I'm going to do now. So I'm going to have a couple of you. No, be, relaxed. But you need to know that Jesus, in, in that moment... He did something that every single one of us for our lives would change everything. So he goes to the final meal, the Passover meal. We know it today as the what? The Lord's Supper. It's at that meal that they have this meal together. Judas leaves the meal and he betrays Jesus. And shortly after that, Jesus is arrested and taken before Pilate. And if you recall the story, which I don't have time to read all before you, he goes before Pilate, and Pilate interviews Jesus and wants nothing to do with this because he goes, man, this guy does not deserve to die, doesn't even deserve to be arrested. There's nothing wrong with him. So he says to the religious leaders, I'm going to release him. I'm not going to keep him. And they go, no, we want him dead. So Pilate goes back. He's going to ponder this thing, so he has an idea. The idea is this. Well, I'll take Jesus, and I'll beat him within an inch of his life. And then when the people see that he's within the inch of his life, that he's paid dearly for whatever great crime he's committed, claiming to be the Messiah, I'll beat him with an inch of his life. And when they see that, they'll feel compassion for him and they'll release him. At least I'll spare his life. He does that, brings Jesus before the people. What do they say? Crucify him. We'd rather have Barabbas. Let Barabbas go. You keep Jesus and you kill him. And so Jesus is led to the place of the skull, it's called It's a place where crucifixions would take place. It's just this rock encroachment right outside of uh, the walls of Jerusalem. It's right on a major thoroughfare, right on the corner of a major thoroughfare that goes east and west and north and south. So everybody would see. And Jesus there was crucified. There, the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world and no one would even know it. Now, John begins to give us some details that that you wouldn't necessarily write into the story if you were making this story up. Let's begin verse 25 of John 19. Now, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which, of course, is John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home this is just the way that Jesus was saying to John you take care of my mom you take care of her and again you wouldn't write this into the story it doesn't doesn't mean anything unless it's true and you're documenting thing now it's coming to Sabbath and they didn't want Jews the religious leaders didn't want Jews and Jesus was a Jew didn't want him hanging on a cross when Sabbath came so they pleaded with them to hurry up and get the crucifixion done. So you recall the story. The Roman guards come and they break the legs of the thieves that are there to make sure that they die more quickly because as soon as the weight is taken off of the, being able to support themselves, immediately all the pressure is put on the lungs. They can't breathe and basically they drown in their own blood, not able to, to, to breathe and have their, their heart pumped properly. They break the legs of the thieves. With Jesus, they come and it appears that he's dead already to make sure they take a spear, the Bible says, and they pierce it from, from down up and through his side. The Bible tells us that it punctures the heart cavity and blood and water flow, which any physician will tell you is this clear indicator that the, that the person's dead. And in fact, when they died, they were under great duress and the blood actually began to separate and he'd been dead for some time, if you will. It wasn't like it just happened seconds ago, dead. So John begins to give us more details and, and record something very important at this point. He says this in verse 35. The man who saw it, don't forget, this is John. So he's referring to John. The man who saw it, who is John, has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. This is important. Because what John says in this moment is this. If you're reading this story, he says, I want you to know I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Someone didn't tell me this story, I saw this story. I was there when he was beaten. I was there when they nailed him to the cross. I was there when he said, I, was, I am thirsty. I was there when he said, take care of my mother. I was there when he cried, it is finished. I was there and I watched him and I saw him when his head slumped and he took his last breath. John says, I was there. I need you to know that. This is not made up. I actually was there and I saw it all take place. In fact, the term he uses where it says, he gave testimony I gave testimony that this is true. The best translation we have today would be this. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Right? That's as close as we have. That's as close as we get today where someone who would say, give me that Bible, I'll put my hand out, and I will tell you that this is the truth. That's what John says. John's using a legal term which says, I'm telling you, it happened. I was there and I saw it. And the reason I'm writing it down is so that you'll believe it too. But up to this point, please know in our story, up to this point, all we have is a dead wannabe Messiah. That's all we've got. We've got a guy who claims to be the Messiah. He's now been put to death by the Roman soldiers. Now in our story comes a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph asks Pilate if he can have the body so he can bury the body. Back to our story in verse 38. So later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there." Some details that you may not notice, but in the story, it says Joseph goes to Pilate and asks if he can have the body to bury it. You know why he did that, right? Because you weren't allowed by law to bury crucified people. They were criminals. Crucified criminals weren't buried. They didn't deserve it. In fact, if it weren't for Sabbath being close and Jesus being Jewish and the religious leaders kind of pressing them, they didn't typically want dead Jews up on the, up on the crucifixion site. Normally what would happen is this, so a criminal would be put to death, and they would leave the criminal on the cross. They'd leave him there for a number of days. Why? Well, it was right on a main thoroughfare, east, west, north, south, which means everybody coming in, going out of the city. Ever want to think about crime? Just look up there. Don't do that. So they would leave the bodies there as a deterrent. And then when it was time enough, they would take the bodies down, and they would throw the bodies in the garbage pit that the animals have at it, because that's what they deserved. So that's why Joseph, the point is he has to go get permission because you don't bury crucified people. So Pilate, you might think, so Pilate has some moment of softness. Probably not. From what we know from historical documents of the day, Joseph probably paid Pilate something. A little backdoor bribe to get the body of Jesus now we keep adding to the story and he gives us details John does Nicodemus is there and Nicodemus comes and he brings with him 75 pounds worth of embalming spices now I would suggest to you go and pick up a 10 pound bag of potatoes multiply that by seven and uh, see how easily you lug around 75 pounds of stuff but he shows up with 75 pounds of embalming spices and they take the spices, they mix them all together and they soak strips of cloth in the spices and then they begin to do their version of embalming which would be to take the body and wrap the body in these strips of cloth. They would do the strips of cloth because as you know, it'd just be easier. It's just easier to take strips at a time and begin to wrap and basically mummify the body. That would be their embalming. So they do that. But you, and they do it right according to the Jewish custom so they do it the correct way. But on top of all this, they have to hurry. They don't have time here. Sabbath is coming, sundown is coming, they got to get this thing done, so they go quickly and they don't have time to carry the body far, but you know, fortunate for them that where the cross was at, where the crucifixion took place, right next door is a garden, and in that garden is a tomb, now by a tomb that was carved, meaning literally it was a piece of stone and somebody went and carved a cave, and out of the cave they carved beds into it so they could lay a body, and so somehow they arranged that they could put Jesus there because they had no time in which to do this. So they do their job, they put Jesus in. Now please know, John was present in all this. We know John and Peter were there, probably other disciples, but John and Peter for sure, which means that the reason we have this accounting is because they were there. They saw it all. They knew it was 70 pound, 75 pounds of spices because they were there and they witnessed it all. They saw the strips of cloth. They knew the tomb was there. They knew where the tomb was at. They know it was sealed. They were there. The Bible tells us once the tomb is sealed, they disappear. They go into the city, we don't know where. We don't know where they went on that Friday night. We don't know where they stayed. We don't know what they did on Saturday. But I can tell you this. First of all, I'm guessing it would be pretty silent. You see, when you lose someone, there's already a silence that comes but when you lose someone in this case, you see, if you lose someone you love, that there's fear, and I mean, there's grief and crying well question, but it's typically interspersed with some joy and some laughter because you remember the good things. You remember what they mean to you. So you, you cry, but then you laugh. But there's no real laughter here because everything they had hoped for is done. There's no remember the good times because the good times were all based upon what was yet to come, and the yet to come is over. And I would venture to say this, regardless of where they were at, I'm guessing this, that they would be thinking to themselves that what a waste. I mean, all the dreams, all the hopes, everything they hoped for is now done. It's just gone. And now what do we do? I'm guessing that Friday night and certainly Saturday, they were in shock, disillusioned, heartbroken, and emotionally empty. I mean, think about it. Less than one week ago, the crowds were shouting Hosanna, And they were thinking that he'd be crowned king and each of them would be a part of the king's court. And here they are with a dead savior. What a horrible day Saturday must have been, right? Friends, if you've ever lost a loved one, in the immediacy of that moment, you get just a little feeling of what their Friday night and their Saturday would have been like with absolutely, though, no hope. John tells us that early in the morning... Now, we don't know if it's early that they're still sleeping. We don't know if they slept at all. But he tells us this. All of a sudden, there's a big commotion outside the door, and someone's pounding on the door. And we read the story. We find that it's Mary. Mary Magdalene has found them. She knows where they're at. No one else knew, but she knew. And she finds them, and she's sobbing, and she's out of control panic. Now, a quick side note for Mary Magdalene. There are some books. Mary Magdalene was one of the most devout followers of Jesus. We see her throughout the scriptures. Devout follower of Jesus. Some books and some movies will try to tell you that she was actually a prostitute, an evil woman. Uh, some will tell actually to make the case that says that actually Mary and, Joseph and Jesus were married secretly. There's a big name movie out there that is all predicated on that's the storyline. Just so you know, none of it is true. None of it is even remotely founded in Scripture or any piece of history. Well, why would someone do that? Because everyone looks for something to sell a book or sell a movie. That's it. Here's what we know about Mary. Mary was a devout follower of Jesus. She was healed and Jesus set her free from multiple demons that had controlled her life. For Mary's life, her life was controlled by all sorts of forces that she could not control, and it, it ran her life. And Jesus comes along and sets her free. I got a question for you. If the demons of life are in complete control of your life, and you know there's nothing you can do to be free, and someone comes along and miraculously sets you free, I'm just betting you'd follow him too, forever. That's exactly what she did. She got set free. All of a sudden, Jesus is in control, not her, not the demons. And so she follows Jesus. So there she stands, sobbing, crying, maybe knocking on the door, but they say, what's going on? And panicked and sobbing, she says, he's gone. And she says this, I went to the tomb, and someone's taken his body. Now notice the words Taken. Which means this, there was no assumption of a resurrection. There was no miracle thing. You know, she didn't go in saying, listen, I went to find the body, but lo and behold, it's gone. I think he's alive. Nope. Someone stole the body. Now, Mary knew where to find them. And here's catch this picture. We got at least John and Peter. We have them in hiding. We have them completely brokenhearted. And all of a sudden, there's an urgency. And they take off to the tomb. In fact, they're running. Here's what it says in John chapter 20. And finally, the other disciple, again, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, and then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So first thing I got to tell you, I love the fact that John puts in there that he beat Peter in a race. (laughs) I just love that because that's where we live, Right? You know, John's I'm gonna record this, and by the way, since so this is gonna be recorded for thousands and thousands of years, I got there first. You know, Peter's always the guy, he's the brave guy, he's the strong guy, he's the guy with the sword, blah, blah, blah. But I just want you to know, I beat him. I like that. I relate to that. When I can show somebody up, I'm not only you know, show, show somebody up, not only am I gonna do it, but I'm gonna record it if it's possible. So I like that he does that, but notice something. He does something else that if you're gonna write the story, you wouldn't write this in. Now, if I'm going to write the story, and I beat Peter to the race. I'm going to write that in. But notice the transparency of John. He says this. So I want you to know I beat Peter there, but when I got there, I didn't go in. Why wouldn't he go in? Well, for the same reason that a lot of you wouldn't go in it's a tomb, dead bodies, dark, cemetery, spooky. He's not going in. He gets there first, but there's no hero in this story. He gets there first and he says, I got there, but I am not going in. Just like most of you, you're not going. You got to wait for somebody else to get there. Because we like, we like a little company with us. When my kids were little. We used to play the RAR game. Now, just so you know, I'll tell you the story, but don't send me notes. We've got the kids counseling. They're fine now. <laughs> they've, they've, healed, they've healed completely. We used to play the RAR game. And so the RAR game was that I'd go hide and they'd have to come find me. They'd be in the living room. I'd go hide someplace, some closet, under the bed, behind the door, whatever. And they'd have to come find me. And, of course, whenever they'd get close to get me, I would jump out and go, Roar! And, of course, their hearts would drop. They'd typically fall on the floor and cry. Oh, horrible thing. But it was a fun game. No. Oh. And I'll just so you know, I never forced them to play. They would love to play and hate it, right? You can picture that. Love it, hate it. Let's do the RAR game. Yeah, let's do it. I don't want to do it. So they didn't want to do it. And Sarah was our oldest. And she was on stage here this morning. Sarah was the oldest. You know, she didn't like the game. But she had a younger sister came along. And all of a sudden, she liked the game. <laughs> Why? Because the older sister says, you go first. <laughs> so now Dana hates the game. And they're playing the game, but if you can see them, as I can through the crack of the door, I got Sarah holding Dana like this going, you go first, you go first. So they love the game. And now they both hate the game, but they love it even more. When Adam came along, he's the youngest. Adam, let's play the RAR game. Here, you go first. That's exactly how we work, right? Whenever you're frightened, whenever you're afraid, whenever you don't want to do something, what do you want? I just want somebody to go first. And it's amazing how courageous we are when someone goes first. So we do have a hero in this story. He shows up. His name's Peter. John says, I get there, but I'm not going in. And then Peter comes. Peter runs right by him and runs in. Our hero has come. Peter runs in, and then it says, after Peter goes in, then John decides to go in as well. And then John tells us, he says, we saw the strangest thing. Something completely unexplainable. In fact, there's only one one explanation. But he didn't get there right away. He says this, so we walked in, and I'm looking, and he says, all of the strips of linen that were part of the mummy process, all those strips of linen, they're laying there perfectly in place. They're all, they're all laying there just like a body was there except for no body, which means this, he goes, they, they were all wrapped in place, but it looks like they were all there, and he, so they're all in place except for it looks like somehow the body came out of them but didn't touch them. That's what the description means, that when they're all in place, they mummified the body, set it there, but the body's gone. Everything's perfectly in place. On top of that, the cloth that they used to cover his head, it's perfectly in place and yet separate from the others. And If you're thinking separate, you think, well, how can that be? Because, I mean, here's the body, here's the head. How separate can it be? Well, let me give you the description. Here's what it means. He's saying this. Listen, if someone were going to steal the body, they wouldn't take time to unmummify the body. You don't unembalm the body. You just take the body. You take everything with it. But on top of that, if they were going to do that, it would be absolutely impossible. What John's actually saying is this. What I'm looking at is not possible. A person couldn't undo the body, take the body out, and then put these cloths back as if a body was there. It's it's not possible to do it, which means this. If this was a theft... They would have taken everything. But on top of that, if they did decide to unembalm the body, it'd just be a mess there. This was no rush job. I mean, they didn't just pull off these clothes and this cloth and set them there. And then if you read the story, you begin to see that something begins to happen in John's head. He's looking at this and he's going, this can't be. This can't be. Could it be? Is it possible? And his head and his heart begin to think something that, up to this point, he couldn't have dreamt to be possible. Now imagine, if you would, what's going on in his head, and in just a moment, time, John's world completely changes. And in fact, he gives us the formula as to what changed him. And it's the formula that not only what changed him, but what changed all the disciples. It's the formula as to what has changed people all through the centuries. He says this in verse 8 Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Here's the formula see it? He saw and he believed. There's the formula. I saw it and I believed it. He doesn't have all the pieces put together yet. He can't string everything together. He doesn't know where Jesus is, but he knows Jesus is not there. He doesn't know where Jesus has gone, but his head begins to say, I know he's not here, and, I, and yet I know he's not dead. I know he's not dead. I can't figure all this out. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ reframed his entire life. It reframed his life in that moment. It reframed everything that he would live for. And in that moment, it began to dawn on John. And suddenly, the confusion of his heart, the confusion of his head began to collide, and slow a light came on. It wasn't a bright light. But where there was darkness, now there was a light. Now, please think about this. Imagine, if you will, you're John. Be John with me for just a moment. There I am. Who, who could imagine that this could be? Who could imagine such a plan? Who could imagine such great a mercy? Who could imagine such boundless grace? Who could imagine such undeserving love? I mean, I was with Jesus, and Jesus invited the worst of sinners to come and be with him. The people that everyone else despised, the people that were repulsive to everyone else, they're the ones that Jesus actually sat down to eat with Jesus gave dignity to every single person. There was a woman caught in adultery, and I was there, and I saw it. She was caught in adultery. She was ashamed and embarrassed, and Jesus covered her, and he protected her, and he cared for her. He gave dignity to every single person. He spoke with the commanders of the Roman armies. He spoke with the noblemen. He spoke with the rich, and yet he had the same conversations with the poor and with the sick and the diseased. You couldn't tell the people apart, not the way that he treated them. He empowered the disempowered. He gave hope to the hopeless. He gave worth to the worthless. The God of the ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and to wear my shame. He paid a debt that he did not owe he paid my debt that i could not pay and on that easter morning john would tell us it all began to come together the light though dim was on let's get to the end of the story so at that point he hasn't seen jesus yet but he would in fact the Bible tells us that Jesus shows up and has many conversations with the disciples and has many conversations with other people in fact John actually records many of those conversations but one of them I want to read for you as we end and one of those interactions goes like this now remember when Jesus was crucified when he's dead all the disciples they just scatter they all go their own directions why is that well because the movement's over don't forget if you don't have Jesus you don't have a movement Because the movement was not about the teachings of Jesus. It was about what Jesus said about himself. That he was God. You see the problem is this. If you're God you can't die. And if you're dead you weren't God. So Jesus is dead. Movement is over. And so they scatter. But slowly they come back together. And Jesus actually shows up and talks with them. But one guy wasn't there when he showed up. Remember his name is Thomas. And here's the story of Thomas. Now Thomas... And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus showed up. But the Jesus sightings were happening, and so some, for some reason, uh, Thomas makes his way back and finds the disciples. Imagine him walking in, and all of them go, Thomas, where have you been? You have missed it. You go, what did I miss? Jesus, he's alive. We saw him. He was right here. We saw him in person. And Thomas, just so you know, Thomas is me. And Thomas is you. Thomas is us. And you walk into that room and everybody goes, yep, we saw him. And Thomas goes, no way. Listen, I spent three years of my life chasing a dream that ended on that Friday. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life chasing after the rumor that he might be alive. And so Thomas, he says, listen, unless I see it for myself, I'm out. I don't believe unless Jesus shows up in the person and then he adds this to it, which is really kind of laying down the line in the sand, right? Unless he shows up in person and I get to put my finger in the hole in his hand and I get to put my hand in the hole in his side, then no, I'm out. I don't believe. I will not believe. Now, just so you know, Thomas's words aren't really being defiant. He's actually covering his bases. Now, very sincerely. He walks into a room, and all the disciples are there, and every one of them swear that he's alive. Now, if you're, if you're Thomas, and you're there, you're going, it cannot be. When's the last time you saw one, you know, someone who was dead raise themselves from the dead? Now, they saw Lazarus, but this was Jesus. So you're going, no. But then you think to yourself, but they saw something. They saw something. You know what? I bet they saw a ghost. Now, listen, you're stretching here a little bit. I get it. But at least you're going, hey, I'm going to give him credit. They saw something. And everyone knows, now I'm just you know, saying this facetiously, everybody knows you can't touch a ghost. So what's he say? So he says, so here's the deal. I'll believe if he shows up and I actually touch him. I actually put my finger in the hole in his hand and put my hand inside side because then I know it's real. Then I know he's a real body. John, I love you. The rest of you, Peter, I love you. I love you all. But just so you know, I'm out. I'm done. To all of you, the same. I don't believe. A week later, they're all back together. Thomas is there as well. The doors are locked. Says it again. The doors are locked. When they told P- Thomas this, I'm guessing they said, hey, we saw him. doors locked. You showed up. He didn't knock or anything. So now the story says they're all there again, and the doors are locked. And the story says that Jesus shows up, and his first words are, peace be with you. Well, of course he said, peace be with you, because every time he just shows up like that, not knocking, scares the bejeebers out of him. And so, of course, you start with, peace be with you. You got to say something because, you, and I can see them. If I'm them, I'm going, you Jesus, could you just knock on the door? I mean, when you show up like this, we love seeing you, but I got to tell you, kind of takes our breath away a little bit. So he says, peace be with you, calms them right down. And then he gets right to it. Thomas, I hear you wanted to see me. Now, can't you picture this? this, this in my head, this is like the, the, show, the, the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's high noon. I see all the disciples kind of splitting out of the way. There's Jesus. There's Thomas. No one's around. No one's close. They're going, this ought to be good. (laughs) This ought to be good. Thomas. Now, please catch this. You may have heard me say this other Easter's, but I'll say it yet again. Jesus could have said, and please know he's the only one who's allowed to. He could have looked at Thomas and said, Thomas, go to hell. And just so you know, he's the only one that got permission to say that. He could have said, just go to hell. I'm done with you. You doubt, you don't believe, stop wasting my time. But he doesn't. He says, Thomas, let's see what you're made out of, big guy. You said you wanted to touch me. Right here. You said you wanted to see my wound. Right here it is. Step forward, Thomas. And Thomas says this. Oh, my Lord and my, oh my, oh my, oh my God. And then Jesus says to Thomas something that I think is one of the most gracious things you'll ever see in Scripture. Let me fill it out for you a little bit. He says to Thomas this, Thomas, I understand why you doubted. I know why you didn't believe. You didn't believe because you didn't see me, because you couldn't see me. And Thomas, don't let these other guys fool you because, see, they act like they believe and that they've always believed. And Thomas, they're lying to you. They only believe because they saw me. Now, listen, Thomas, listen carefully. These guys are going to give you a nickname that you're going to carry for the rest of your life. In fact, I'm going to tell you, Thomas, something you can't see. 2,000 years from now, every Sunday morning preacher is going to quote your nickname. They're going to call you Doubting Thomas. And Thomas, you wear that title as a badge of honor. Because every one of them doubted too. So don't you let them put you down because they think that they didn't doubt. They have doubted. And then this next thing, don't miss this. This is the end of the story. Don't miss it. And then something happens there that you really have to get a hold of. And then Jesus says something in that moment that is really incredible. And so he's talking to Thomas, and he's talking to the 12. But don't forget, he's divine. He's a resurrected Christ. And it's as if in that moment, though he's looking at Thomas, it's as if he looks right through Thomas, right past him. And he's not just looking to the other room. He's looking right past Thomas. And he has the ability to look past Thomas and to look forward through time, through thousands of years, right up to this moment. And he sees you. And he sees your face. And he happens to see every other person through thousands of years that would follow Jesus. He sees you. He sees me. And with you in mind, he says this. You have believed because you've seen me. Now, here's where you come into the picture. But blessed are those who have not seen, who will not see, and yet they will believe. Do you get that moment? He looks past Thomas, and he looks right at you. And he says, you believed because you saw me. But blessed are those who never saw But they believe because they believed in the testimony of what you wrote. And they said, I will follow Jesus. Let me ask our band to come out. They're just going to close. They're going to play some music as you leave. I'll have them come out and get ready. John would say, after all of that, John would say, I saw and I believe. And then he would say, and I want you to believe. And then he ends with this invitation. Let me hear, here's her last passage. John would write this in verse 30 of chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, John says, but these I wrote down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember, I started by saying that Easter is no small deal. It's a big deal. And if you in your life have ever felt alone in your walk with God. See, a lot of times we live in a culture that's changing. We live in a world that's changing and uh, we get a little nervous as Christians and I hear Christians say, oh man, it's all going south and there's none of us left. It's just a few of us. You ever feel like you're alone and no one else in the world believes you could not be more wrong. Do you know that this Easter weekend around the world, one third of the world will stop celebrate Easter not Easter egg hunts do you realize that 2.4 billion people proclaim to be Christians they believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ now I'll tell you right now they may not be living the kind of life that some of you like to think but 2.4 billion say hey I believe it Christian Do you know in the United States, if you're here in the United States and you feel like, oh boy, there's one south and no more believers, you're wrong. Do you know that nearly 70% of American adults, U.S. adults, 70% believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe in Christianity. They claim to be Christians. 70%. That's 250 million people. Do you realize, do you know that Christianity today remains to be the fastest growing religious group in the world by conversion? Now, catch what I said. Muslim faith is the fastest growing religion in the world by birth. Christianity remains the fastest growing religious group in the world by conversion. You know what that means, conversion? That means people like you, have heard the story and have said, I believe him. I believe it to be true. You need to know you are not alone. You need to know you're not some small minority. You need to know that those who profess to be believers and followers of Jesus, you're actually a majority of the people. So why do we keep acting like we're the only ones that believe? Woe is us. Stop it. And the way Jesus would say to Thomas, stop doubting, start believing. Start living your life differently. John would say, I still believe. People today would say, I believe. Will you? On that first Easter morning, the buried body of Jesus began to breathe. And when that buried body of Jesus took its first breath again, On this side of the tomb, you need to know the Lion of Judah roared. And what he said is this, death has no claim on me. And if you follow me, death has no claim on you. So follow him. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, oh, how I pray this weekend you would consider it. If you're exploring the claims of Christ, come back next week. We're going to keep talking about it. We're gonna talk, we're gonna tell the story about Jesus and a blind guy and what Jesus does and how that guy comes to faith. If you're just exploring it, come on back. We'll keep talking. We'll keep talking to the, as long as it takes for you to go and say, I got it. I believe. And if you are a follower of Jesus, celebration, right? He is alive. Stand, please, let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. I know we're here for different reasons. Some of us here, we wouldn't be any place else other than church and to celebrate. Others of us aren't even sure how we got here today, but we said yes to somebody, and here we are confronted with this statement of who Jesus is. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming back to life. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for redeeming me. I pray that any person here who has never placed their faith in you would take that step and, and realize it's not blind faith. It's faith clearly rooted in the testimony of others. And for those of us who have placed our faith on you, we know the testimony to be true because in our own heart, we've had it confirmed. You are alive. Dismiss us on this Easter Sunday in your grace and with your joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and happy Easter to you.